The Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California brings together top Republicans and Democrats to transcend partisan divisions and explore practical solutions to our most pressing national and global challenges. On the Bully Pulpit podcast, every exchange is guided by standards central to the Center for the Political Future's mission. Respect each other and respect the truth. Opponents are adversaries, not enemies. And if you lose, don't burn down the stadium. Subscribe to the Bully Pulpit podcast today. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm your host, Kara Ong Whaley. Co-hosting with me today is Dr. Abraham Goldberg. What would American democracy look like if everyone participated? Americans turned out to vote in record numbers in the 2020 presidential election, and turnout has been on the rise in other recent elections. However, voter turnout in the United States still lags behind other countries. In this episode, we're joined by Miles Rappaport, the Senior Practice Fellow in American Democracy at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Harvard Kennedy School. Miles formerly served in the Connecticut State Legislature and as the Secretary of the State. He also served as President of Demos and Common Cause. We also have joining us E.J. Dion Jr., a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, university professor at Georgetown University, and visiting professor at Harvard University. EJ and Miles are co-authors of 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Thank you so much for joining us, Miles and EJ. What a joy. It's great to be with you. So, EJ, I wonder if you can start us off by talking about why you decided to write this book. Yeah, it it came from several sources. Uh, first, I had spent a lot of time over the years uh, in Australia and had seen their system of universal voting work very well. And so that initially got me into this to the point where, and Miles will mention this perhaps a little later, my colleague Bill Galston and I wrote a Brookings paper about seven years ago uh, recommending uh, this system. Um, but I also came to it Uh, because I see it as an answer, a way through our current voting wars. And as Miles and I will be arguing in the course of this podcast, um, we think the best way uh, to defend democracy as a right is to insist on it as a legal and civic duty. Um, If you do that, if you adopt a system like Australia's, uh, then a lot of the barriers to voting would fall because it would necessarily be the case that a system that requires everyone to vote would have to make it as easy as possible for everyone to do their civic duty. And in our book, as you know, we propose a series of gateway reforms uh, to make it easier for people to vote. And that's exactly what Australia did. Um, We came to this also uh, because of uh, dissatisfactions in the various ways in which our democratic system is working now. Um, I like to say that our current election system is like a fancy dinner party uh, where you have, you know, at fancy dinner parties, you have an A list and a B list and a C list. You know, the A list are the people you really want and the B and the C list you turn to as a last resort. Um, In our voting system, there is an A list of likely voters uh, who get all of the attention from the politicians, all of the attention from their consultants, uh, all kinds of mail and social media communications. 
essentially the A-list is constantly invited and asked to vote. Um, also, uh, the people on the A-list who are in the other party are barraged with really nasty messages trying to keep them home. Uh, and we also now have um, proposals in various that have passed in various states that are designed to keep the other side's A-list from being voting, voting at all. In the meantime, you've got the B-list of registered voters who don't vote often and a C-list of people who aren't registered who get remarkably little attention from our campaigns um, and from our uh, political leaders. And one of the things we know from good political science research is people are more likely to do something if you ask them to do it. And the people on the B and the C lists are not asked to vote, are not invited to vote. And so we see our system of universal voting modeled broadly after Australia's, although as we'll talk, it's been in uh, effect in about two dozen other countries. Um, but we think the Australia model with a hundred years of proof of concept, you don't get many uh, ideas that have that long a proof of concept. We think that uh, system would uh, be a message to everyone that everyone should be part of our great experiment uh, in democracy. Miles, you've been involved in voting and election issues for a long time in several different roles, both in the nonprofit organizations you've served, as well as in state government. I'm curious if you could speak to what made you decide to embrace this idea of universal voting. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question and one that I uh, you know think about a lot and uh, and I'm I'm very glad about. So I'll I'll go back and start. If I realized recently that I have been working on voting rights issues and expanding democracy and um, campaign finance reform and gerrymandering reform for just about forty years. Uh, both in the legislature and as secretary of the state, then as president of Demos and as president of Common Cause. And so, you know, I have worked on almost all of the kind of various reforms that people who are working on, who believe in voting, you know, uh, expanding voting uh, have worked on from same day voter registration, automatic voter registration, pre-registration of 16 and 17 year olds, restoration of voting rights to people with have felony convictions who have been barred from voting previously, um, expanded mail-in voting, expanded early voting, all of those things. And I believe in them, I believe in them all. And I think they really have worked. Um, I mean, they've obviously worked enough so that there is now a, a fiercely determined movement to roll all of it back uh, which we see in the voter suppression laws that are being passed in, in, the, in a number of states. But I realized maybe five or six years ago that, um, you know, for all the work that I and, you know, thousands of other people have done on these issues, we haven't moved the needle very far. You know, I looked at the 2018 turnout figures and the 2020 turnout figures and the 2018 uh, turnout was the highest in, you know, in memory probably ever. Um, and it was at 50.3% of the eligible voters. And in 2020, you know, which credit to the whole election, election administrators and election system in the middle of a pandemic, we managed to pull off, um, you know, what, what should have been a cause for celebration, uh, you know, a high level of voting in a, in the, in all, under all those difficult circumstances. And even that was at 66.2%. So, you know, I thought, all right, so all of these things have made a difference and they're worth working for, but we haven't 
But what could really be a game changer? What really might move the needle, not from you know 56 to 58%, but up to 90%. So we really could look at being having really genuinely full participation. Um, so, and then I read an article that th this uh, person named E.J. Dion had written uh, for the Brookings Institution, along with his colleague, William Galston, um, which made the case that we should adopt uh, the Australian style of compulsory participation in the polls or uh, universal voting, I think is a better, more precise term for it uh, for us. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really, really an interesting idea. It's really good idea. It's been and it's been in, in Australia for a hundred years and other countries for decades. And yet here I have been working on for on these issues for 40 years, and I've never been in a conversation about this as a possible policy. And that made me really angry, frankly, and determined to you know, get into it and see whether this has any viability, because it would, really would make a huge difference. So then I uh, uh, was able uh, uh, to uh, enlist EJ to co-chair this working group that was a joint project of the Brookings Institution, the Ash Center. And we did a report back in 2020 called Lift Every Voice, The Urgency of Universal Civic Duty Voting. That then attracted the, um, the attention of the new press, uh, Diane Moctel, the uh, executive director of this wonderful nonpartisan nonprofit um, publishing company. Uh, who said she really, really wanted a, a book about that. So EJ and I eagerly agreed. And it's been a labor of love. I should say working with EJ on this has been one of the kind of collateral, huge collateral benefits of, uh, of being involved in the issue. But I guess the short answer to sum that all up, Abe, sorry to go on so long, is that, you know, this is an opportunity. This policy, if it is seriously discussed and embraced, whether that's at the federal level or at the state level or even in some municipalities, has the possibility to leap over the kind of brittle debates over, you know, should we expand uh, early voting to 15 days or contract it to eight days, um, you know, that we've been having. And put, you know, we really wanted to kind of put a North Star out there to say, we can imagine a situation, we can imagine a country, we can imagine a democracy in which everyone is participating or almost everyone is participating. That would be a good thing. If you believe in democracy, that's a really good thing. Let me ask you a quick follow-up for either one of you. Um, the United States has notoriously low voter turnout rates relative to many other democracies. Um, EJ, you spoke about the A list, B list, and C list. We know that many people aren't voting. Can you speak to, to me when I think about the problem of low voter turnout? We also know that who's in that A, B, and C list isn't necessarily a representative sample across those of us in the United States, but there's really demographic differences and socioeconomic differences um, as it relates to who's participating and who isn't. So in defining the problem of the low voter turnout that we have here, how does that affect questions about public policy and representation? Well, thank you for that. By the way, I want to return the favor to Miles. I have loved working with him. There are two things I always say about Miles. One, quite relevant to the book. And what comes after the first is Miles has so much energy that if Europe could just tap Miles, they would never have to import another drop of Russian <laughs> oil. 
And the second thing I say about Miles is that he's such an inveterate organizer that when he goes to heaven, he will immediately organize the angels into a union. And I would love to see the theological issues raised when Miles leads a collective bargaining with God. Uh, but that's relevant because Miles, and we can talk about this later, Miles is organizing the 100% Democracy Initiative, where uh, this is a book that we where we advance this argument, uh, but we're also committed to seeing this idea adopted, probably over time, probably first at the state and local level. But we, uh, you know, Miles has already started doing some organizing on this, and that's a great thing. Um, on your point, um, there are several problems we have with voter turnout that I think are particular to us. Um, one is um, that our registration system is far more difficult than it has to be. Uh, one of the reasons we like the Australian system is because they have a streamlined voter registration system that gets 96% of Australians uh, registered. And I have, uh, she's honored in the book, uh, I, I had a great research assistant named Amber Hurley who was researching what Australia does to help people register and vote. And she came in my, into my office all excited and said, you, you got to see all the cool things Australia does to make it easier for people to register and vote. We should do that. And we think we should uh, do that. And that creates one of the particular holes in the electorate, which is that the young are you know, very much underrepresented um, in the electorate. We have the figures in the book, which I will try to rifle through and find quickly. But we, um, you know, young people move around a whole lot more than older people do. Older people are settled. Our system makes it much easier if you're settled and registered in the same place uh, to vote in election after election. And that is, by the way, I think for the young, uh, same-day voter registration is one of the most uh, important reforms you can have just to give the numbers. Even in 2020, where the young vote went up, according to the Census Bureau figures, um, uh, 18 to 29 is 54%, 65 plus is 74.5. So um, there you have one of the big holes um, in the electorate. A second big hole um, are, is by class and um, using education as a rough in a rough indicator of class. Um, uh, again, 2020, high turnout among all groups, relatively speaking. Uh, less than a high school diploma, 41.5%. Bachelor's degree, 77.9%. Advanced degree, 83%. That's a huge, uh, that's a huge gap uh, that we have. Um, and also, um, uh, black voter turnout is a little lower than white turnout, although it's been on the upswing. But Latino and Asian American turnout uh, is significantly lower. Those are kind of the biggest holes um, in our electorate in terms of participation. And by the way, those numbers should and should give some reassurance to people who argue, well, these guys or anybody who wants to increase voting is only trying to elect Democrats perpetually. Um, two things about that. One, the Australian, this idea actually came originally from the conservative side of Australian politics because they were worried about the power of organized labor, the union movement. They felt that maybe the Labor Party in Australia would win every election. Uh, and the labor looked at the system and said, no, we think we can do just fine under this system. And you know, the, uh, uh, Australia has had great um, uh, you know, transfer of power back and forth between one party and another, it looks 
like in the current election, a week uh, you know coming up soon that um, uh, you know that labor will oust conservatives who've been in power for a long time. But B, look at your own state of Virginia. The Democrats, when they were in power in Virginia, made it much easier to vote. Produced a huge turnout for helped produce a huge turnout for the 2021 election. Um, and the Republicans swept all three uh, statewide elected offices. So we think people in both parties have to give up the idea that high turnout automatically equals Democratic uh, victories. Um, and uh, because there are various holes in the electorate and they kind of balance each other out uh, to some degree. And besides, voting isn't static. People change their minds over time. Look at the variation in the Latino vote. Uh, since 2000 as a good example. So you can't predict from that. And that's good because we're not in this because we're trying to fix the outcome of elections. We're in this because we want an inclusive democracy. So you both have referred to universal civic voting as you know essentially being able to put an end to many of the legal assaults on voting rights. Um, and, and we see that in many states across the country, and I think you both have referred to this already, but there are at least um, at least 250 restrictive voting bills um, in 27 legislatures. Um, 49 bills have been introduced this year that would undermine the electoral process. Um, and, you know, we also see other states where there are more expansive provisions um, that, that have been introduced um, in, in state legislatures. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about how you see um, universal voting helping to ameliorate the legal challenges that we're seeing in our in our electoral processes. Could I just put one fact on the table and kick it over to Miles? This is as of a month or so ago from when we're speaking. Uh, we are really becoming two Americas when it comes to democracy, because according to the Brennan Center, since the 2020 election, 25 states have actually expanded voting opportunities. They took a look at what happened and said, this is great. We can bring more people in and make it easier still for people to vote. So 25 states on that side and 19 states on the other side that have rolled back uh, voting uh, opportunities. And while the 19 states that rolled it back tend to be red states, tend to be Republican states, there are states like Kentucky and Utah that have actually tried to make it easier uh, to vote um, in that period. And um, so, you know, instead of just building together on reforms that made it easier to vote, you've got all these states saying, oh, gee, we didn't like it that so many people went to the polls. And we think that's a bad idea. And to kick it over to Miles, we think a universal voting would help push back against that. Uh, why don't you take it from there, Miles, if that's okay? I guess I would say two things. One, EJ always uses the term that the best way to protect voting as a right is to assert it as a civic duty for every American. And that is that if we can change the frame of the discussion to the fundamental, to having as a starting point, the fundamental idea that we want every single person to be participating, I think that starts to change the way different kinds of institutions will look at their responsibilities within democracy. Uh, it will change the way election officials uh, think about what they have to do, not so much selecting who, who is eligible and who isn't, but rather helping everyone to make sure that they can fulfill their civic responsibilities. I think it's fair to say, though, that this is not a, a, a magic elixir that somehow if we get the debate going about universal voting, 
uh, voter suppression will cease. I mean, there is a real and determined effort by, you know, not by the way, and I think it's important to say not by the Republican Party as a party, because I know that there are a number of Republican secretaries of the state and other Republican election officials who did really, really good jobs in 2020 of, of, of making the system work so that people could, in fact, vote. But within the party, uh, you know, there are clearly people who are determined to enshrine minority rule. Uh, by any means necessary. And we can't sugarcoat that at this point. Uh, and it has to be fought, you know, in the in the in the legislatures, in the courts, um, through the Justice Department in some, some situations. But we also don't want to just sort of, you know, be in the frame of the de defensive uh, of a defensive posture. I think what EJ hoped to do is put out a North Star of what we right, really imagined democracy could be. And that is with everyone participating. And I think that will have hopefully a healthy spillover effect into the discussion. And again, if I could just go back to um, um, Australia and we talked before we went on the on, on the podcast about your know, parties and voting, I think what you uh, that is say not political parties, but partying, uh, having fun, connecting elections to and making them celebrations rather than dreary six hour waits in line. Um, what's really striking is that Australia has created over this hundred years a real ethic uh, um, and a sense of obligation in the country, um, but also a sense of celebration whenever elections happen. They have elections on Saturday, which means they can use all the schools in the country as voting places. So they got plenty of voting places. They make it easy to vote other ways, too. And you know, mail voting and the like is going up in Australia as well. Um, but because they and, and we don't propose Saturdays in our book, although we do think it's a good idea to make Election Day a national holiday. Um, but by creating that spirit, um, elections become uh, an occasion for communities to celebrate themselves and come together at polling places. Um, you can buy all kinds of great stuff to eat uh, because the, all the school groups in the neighborhood and the civic groups set up stands to raise money for civic and community activities. And Australia is especially famous for their democracy sausages. Uh, they joke about having sausage sizzles at the polls. Um, and since I've been talking about democracy sausages, I've gotten a number of emails from Australian friends telling me where they're, they are looking forward to that democracy sausage. Um, and um, the, the Board of Elections in Australia has a sense of humor. They actually put out a formal looking statement saying that the onion officially should go on top of the democracy uh, sausage. But we want to make very clear to listeners that while we celebrate democracy sausages in our book, we also suggest that there be vegan alternatives. Um, but having Election Day as a party, having Election Day as a shared civic event, and as I said, celebration, really begins to change your attitude toward what elections are about. And the lines are all so short, and that's so important. You know, and, and in the in the best of circumstances, and I, you know, there's some interesting recent uh, writing about this, you know, that, the, that uh, we think that the universal voting could have some impact in increasing the level of trust that people have uh, in the electoral system and therefore uh, in the government as a whole. You know, there, there's a, a very recent article that talked about the differences in part 
in Australia's response and successfully, successfully responding to COVID in comparison to the United States. And one of the factors that was uh, cited most frequently was that people in Australia have more trust in their institutions. And therefore, when there are decrees or instructions or guidances issued, uh, they had they didn't have the same kind of compliance issues that uh, you know that the United States has. And again, does automatic does universal voting automatically get to that result? Not necessarily, but I think it could have a real impact. If you if everyone is participating, everybody feels like they've had some say in electing the government that's there. I think that helps to build trust. Miles is referencing a really great article the New York Times did that compared Australia and us in the United States and its reaction. And, um, you know, a friend of ours recently called our attention to it and said, you know, obviously you can't create a hundred percent correlation. There are all kinds of differences between us and the Australians, but it is notable what, what Miles said that, that, um, you know, there is a degree of trust, even though that doesn't mean people are happy with their parties. There's a lot of unhappiness in Australia, their political unhappiness. It's not, uh, as if they don't have conflict or they don't have moments of alienation. Um, but it is, I think it is a better system that um, tends to produce better civic outcomes. So you lean heavily on Australia, but we know also that two dozen uh, democratic countries have versions of compulsory participation. Um, sticking with this Australian case study, can you speak to how exactly universal voting works there? Yeah, I'll start and, and, and the secretary of the state can uh, pick it up from there as somebody who actually had to run, ran in 11 elections and uh, ran some as well. Um, but the Australian system is pretty straightforward. You have to register, but the government makes it easy to register, helps register people. So you have an almost complete voter roll. If you're on the voter roll, you have to vote. Um, uh, if you, uh, When you do vote, you do not have to pick a candidate. One reason we don't call it compulsory voting is because both as a matter of um, uh, you know, a moral uh, commitment and a legal uh, commitment, uh, you can't force people to choose a candidate on the ballot if they don't want to vote for any of them. So in Australia, you can um, you know, draw a cartoon character on your ballot. You can cast a blank ballot. You can do whatever you want. You just have to participate. And if your form of protest is to abstain, is to cast an empty ballot, you can do that. Um, we would carry that over into our system. Uh, and just to make very clear that voters don't have to pick a candidate, we'd add a none of the above option uh, to every contest. So people could check that, which they now have uh, in the states of Nevada, in Nevada and uh, Arizona. Um, if you don't vote, if you don't show up or cast a ballot by mail, uh, whatever means you choose, uh, you get a notice from the Australian government saying you didn't vote. Uh, why didn't you vote? Um, if you give any kind of reason they don't find you, um, you know, a legitimate reason like being sick or something like that, only 13% of non-voters actually pay the fine, which means only about 1%, 1.3% of people overall, something like that, um, maybe even less than that. Um, so most people don't have to pay the fine. Um, in our system, we would basically take the same thing. It's a, the fine in Australia is $20 Australian, which is about 15 bucks. We propose, states 
obviously could do whatever they want to alter the proposal we have in the book. Um, but we propose a fine of no more than $20. Uh, we were very aware of, the, we, when we organized the working group, we met with all sorts of groups, including civil rights and voting rights groups, immigrant groups, um, and other secretaries of state and local election officials. Um, and there's a real concern about what became known as the Ferguson problem of low-income people having fines multiplied and with penalties and interest and then uh, having them criminalized. So we make very clear that, number one, the $20 fine we propose would not be criminal in nature, uh, could not be criminalized. Two, it would never be increased with penalties or interests. $20 is $20, period. Um, and in addition to that, we have two other provisions that we hope uh, would answer some of the concerns of our libertarian friends who don't, uh, you know, as some of them have already written against this idea. And we talked with them, too, by the way, when we were putting our uh, proposal together in the working group. Um, we provide a conscientious objector status for people. If they really want to stay out of this system, they can. There are some religious groups that... Um, uh, you know, have a problem with participating in government at all, but we don't confine it to religious people. If you want to assert a, a conscientious objector status, you can. Um, and we also give people the option of uh, an hour of community service if they don't want to pay uh, the fine. Um, so that's roughly how the system works. We think of it as at most a nudge and not a shove and not certainly not a hammer. And what we found, and, and Shane Singh, a great uh, political scientist down at the University of Georgia, who's probably one of uh, the world's uh, greatest experts on compulsory participation systems, uh, what he found in research that we include in the book is that systems with moderate enforcement, like Australia's, do about as well as systems with heavy-handed enforcement. So why do heavy-handed enforcement? We think this system can work well with minimal um, you know, pressure on the voter, on the citizen. Miles, you want to pick that up? Yeah, well, that's a pretty good uh, description. But the thing that uh, to add that I want to add to that is that, you know, you can certainly recognize the, the possibility that uh, imposing or, you know, enacting a responsibility of every citizen to vote, if it is overlaid on a kind of suppressive system or Badly functioning election system could be a real would be could be and would be a real problem. So what we do also is support a whole series of gateway reforms. Many of the ones that that I talked about earlier, you know, whose whose uh, enactment, you know, again from same day registration to you know or, or early voting and expanded mail in voting would make it easier for people to fulfill their obligations. We also strongly support the idea of effective nonpartisan and properly funded. Uh, election administration. I mean, we're seeing the 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 negative consequences of a you know balkanized and underfunded and unprofessionalized and frankly partisan uh, election system. You know, in Australia they have a national election commission, and that election commission sets the standards, and they you know make sure that people have the information that they need. They you know have they proper funding to do public education work. And so all those things are important. So what we hope is that the discussion of universal voting and the, you know, the kind of um, uh, end goal of full participation, by the way, the end goal is not uh, passing, passing fines on people. The end goal is full participation and a culture 
that shifts towards full participation. And last one I want to make is that I do think that to the degree that people are seriously talking about universal voting, it will it will create help to create a culture shift. So I like to use the example if I'm a pris, uh, uh, a principal at a high school, and I know that every graduating senior is going to be required to vote as an act of, as a matter of civic duty. Uh, am I going to make civic education a more important part of the curriculum? I think I am. You know what I mean? And I think even if I'm an employer or an institution and all the employees of that institution or company, uh, you know, have to vote, is it more likely that I would make sure that they had the time off and the ability to do so? Again, I think it would. So I think the idea is that, you know, the institutions of the of the society, whether it's a state or whether it's a municipality or whether if it were enacted federally, um, I think would bend towards making this successful. I mean, it would take a lot of work and a lot of time and, and proper funding, but I think it's uh, I think it's a goal worth fighting for. So, Miles, I would love to just kind of follow up on on what you've been discussing in terms of getting there. And, you know, there's you, you both talk in the book about um, gateway reforms that that could accompany it. And we see it in, in many of the states where there's opening up of, of voting rights. Um, uh, but I also wonder um, what you see as some of the challenges, um, especially from your perspective of conducting elections in the state of Connecticut. Um, what, what do you see as some of the challenges to implementing universal voting at the state and local level? And then maybe EJ, if you could talk a little bit about what you see as some of the challenges at the national level, particularly um, in this age of partisan polarization. Well, I was just going to say that the you know the the polarization and the paralysis of polarization, you know, is sort of the biggest potential obstacle. I mean, you know, proposing a major election reform or frankly, any major reform is a daunting task. You know, people have become used to it the way it is. And in elections, you know, people are, are everybody thinks they're an expert who's in political life because it's their livelihood. Um, so I think that, you know, that will certainly be difficult. We're not naive in thinking that this is going to be an easy lift. But I do think that there are that there are and EJ will probably cite a little bit of the polling that we did in the in the book. But there are very much there are people who believe that voting is both a right and a duty. Um, we have the analogy that I think is extremely powerful of jury duty, which is every single American citizen is required to serve on a jury if called. Now, why do we do that? And why have we done it for you know over 100 years? Because we want the jury pool, the people who are deciding on guilt or innocence of a person and, a, and an appropriate punishment, to be fully reflective of the society as a whole and not to be kind of biased or tilted in one direction or another. I think the, that analogy holds absolutely for voting, which is we want, we, we, and we should certainly want, you know, that the decisions about how we govern ourselves, the laws that we live by, the people who are going to create those laws should be selected by the fullest possible representation of the of the society. And I think universal voting gets us there. So I think we're going to find people. We are already finding people uh, who, who say, gee, I hadn't thought about this before. This is a really intriguing idea. Let's have some discussion about it. Um, you know, we're going to get some attacks today. The uh, we were happy to see that we were attacked by in the New York Post. Um, and so, you know, this is this, but this is what it means to put an idea on the, on the table. And I think that uh, there's a, you know, we're not starting from a base where this is an easy lift, 
but we think we can get there and we think uh, some real determined work can get us there. You know, Miles alluded to the polling we did uh, on this uh, with the, uh, the Democracy Fund and the U UCLA's Netscape project, uh, put some questions on their surveys for us. And um, I, I always say that what this, we included in the book, which uh, uh, says either that Miles and I are two of the most honest book writers ever or two of the dumbest, because our own polling shows that right now, most Americans oppose our idea. 26% um, favor it uh, and 64% uh, oppose it. Uh, although the way I look at the numbers, only 48% 40, strongly oppose it, which to me, there are two things about that. One is I was actually pleasantly surprised that for an idea that had never been put forward in any comprehensive way in the public debate, that when we described it, 26% said yes, which I thought was a good place to start. And that um, if 48% are strongly opposed, then you've got about half the country that's already uh, open to persuasion. And so we think there's an opening here. Um, and then the second point is there's an opening because people agree with our underlying premise that voting is both a right and a duty, because in the same poll, we asked, um, you know, is voting a right and a duty uh, or is it a right but not a duty or is it neither a right nor a duty? 61% um, believe it is both a right and a duty. And interestingly, Republicans and Democrats were equally likely to say that it is a right and a duty. And on the proposal itself, um, uh, we found that uh, Republicans were almost as much for it as Democrats were. Uh, we had 33% among Democrats, but we had 29% support among Republicans. Independents were somewhat more skeptical than either Democrats or Republicans. Now, I'll grant you that all this polling was done before uh, former President Trump uh, started his Stop the Steal movement and all of his, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to be direct about lying propaganda about what actually happened um, in 2020. And unfortunately, some of that has had an effect on Republican voters. But I think what, what's good about when we did the polling is that you saw that there were Republicans ready to listen uh, to this idea. And there were Republicans who shared the view uh, that voting is a duty as well as a right. So that we think if we can get past this storm that we're passing through uh, right now, um, we could get somewhere. I have a particular idea, um, which I'm going to ask Miles with his organization to try to bring about, which is I would love a Republican state and a Democratic state to try it at the same time. Um, you know, the two I have in mind because they're small, because they have been open to voters. Expansions are Utah and Vermont. They have strong civic traditions in both states. Um, another path will be to adopt it at the local level. There are 13 states where localities have a lot of freedom uh, to adopt ideas like this, um, counties or, or, or cities or towns, and we'd like to see it tried that way. Um, we, you know, I'm going to steal uh, Miles' line because I like it so much. You know, he's right when he says there's really a democracy movement in the country. Um, I think there are lots of people who are worried about the state of our democracy, but also have hope of improving it. And so we're hoping this becomes part of the fabric of the democracy movement where people who are fighting for all kinds of other reforms say, we really should try this one. 
Just a, a quick note, you mentioned Utah's, which might actually be a wonderful state to start. They're implementing a lot of ranked choice voting in Utah as well right now. I think over 23 towns and localities in Utah have already implemented ranked choice voting. Um, so there's actually a lot of, you know, for right. what we might term as a red state, um, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of progressive work being done in terms of democratic reforms. Well, uh you know, I think that uh, the uh, the other the other point that's worth making is that you could also imagine this being implemented at the municipal level. There's no question that state legislat legislatures could adopt this, and I think there is real interest. I love EJ's idea, and I think the fact, and there is some synergy, Kara, uh, uh, between people who are fighting for ranked choice voting and people who are for universal voting. You know, if Australia you, if, combines them actually. Right, right, and it's going to have an election next week, so we'll find out how they how the two of them did together. Um, uh, but, but that, but the, the idea is being that, you know, if people, if everyone is voting and in fact, everyone's vote is being counted in the way that they mean it to count in the best way that they mean it to count, which I think ranked choice voting does, um, that's a pretty good system. You know, those things go together, I think fairly nicely. So I think, you know, trying to work it, um, in some states and at the municipal level, but it is worth pointing out that there has been a congressional bill filed. Uh, which surprised and delighted us uh, very shortly after the book, Congressman John Larson of Hartford, Connecticut, uh, filed a bill, read the book, uh, thought it was a really good idea and has filed the Civic Duty to Vote Act, which is uh, in Congress now. And uh, he's working on lining up uh, co-sponsors, hopefully some bipartisan co-sponsors uh, as we speak. So, you know, that's a that's a sign for us that this idea is 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 at least ringing and having, having some resonance in various places. Curious to see if Vermont and Utah were, were able to pilot this, what other civic outcomes would accompany voting? Going to Miles's earlier point about building a civic culture, what else might we see from places uh, relative to states that do not have it? It's a good question, an interesting question. And, you know, again, I go back to what EJ said, which is we're not we are not doing this to, you know, win an ideological victory, um, you know, for either party or for particular ideas. There is some sense and it makes perfect sense in a way. Um, if you think about it, that if the when the electorate is fully reflective of the population as a whole, uh, which means that it is more reflective of people who are young, people who are low income, uh, people who don't have, who have lesser in the way of, of degrees, you know, the, the responsiveness of government to the issues of those people is likely to increase. And there's some evidence that, uh, you know, that it does. Again, it's not gonna change overnight. And we have many other aspects of our political system, um, you know, that, that have impact here, which are, would not be changed by universal voting. So the, the, the issues around, around money and politics and the outrageous sums of money that are being put into politics, uh, even, 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 you know, <clears throat> narrowing and narrowing up the pyramid so that you've got, you know, ultra billionaires kind of staking whole uh, elections. Um, you know, you still have the electoral college, doesn't change by universal voting. You still have the undemocratic nature of the Senate itself. Um, so there are a lot of things that we that our democracy needs to work on. But in the lane, it seems to me, of getting people to participate, getting people to own the decisions more, getting people to think of themselves as civic actors in a way that they, you know, that they don't now. Uh, I think universal voting will have a very, very salutary impact 
on those aspects of our culture. And would we see more letters to the editor, heightened political discourse, more engagement in other forms of political and civic activity between election cycles? Well, one of the two other things I think this would do um, is it would almost certainly produce a, I won't even say moderate, because I don't think that's quite the right word, but a less ideological electorate. There is evidence, and it shouldn't surprise us, that um, that the non-voters on the whole tend to be less ideological in their approach uh, to issues, to candidates, to elections, uh, than uh, people who actually vote. Um, as Miles likes to say, a lot of our campaigns are based on enraged to engage. Uh, and you know, we're certainly seeing that already in 2022 um, with some great cost. And so I think that including voters who are less ideological actually has a positive effect on the system. I have a Republican friend who's been involved in Republican and quite conservative politics for a long time, who actually is for this system. I want him to come out and endorse it uh, because he thinks it would make it easier for the Republican Party to moderate itself. And he's not a, a, a squishy you know, liberal Republican. He is a, he's a conservative, but he thinks the party has gone off the rails in, a, in the Trumpian direction. And I think there's evidence that the voters this would bring in um, would be uh, somewhat more moderate. And then I also think, especially in tandem with um, um, ranked choice voting, um, which we write favorably about, although that's not what we are advancing in the book, just to be clear, um, I think that creates some pressure on campaigns to be more inclusive in their messaging and perhaps somewhat less harsh because of the nature of the voters uh, who will be coming in and the nature of the voters they're trying to bring in. And obviously, ranked choice has that effect because if you can't get a number one from a voter, you would like a number two. Um, and again, it's not none of this is an elixir. I, I'm a sociologist, so I think that um, you know some of our a lot of our political discontent is rooted in social factors. So I don't pretend that institutional change alone fixes everything, but I do believe that institutions can shape behavior, uh, and I think this one. Um, would have a lot of effects that we could use right about now. Just to kind of draw out EJ's point even a little more, which is one of the things that would change is the nature of campaigning. You know, uh, uh, right now, uh, you know, the, 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 the currency of the realm, in addition to currency, uh, <laughs> uh, is whether you can turn out your vote. All the Democratic consultants and all the Republican consultants are busy telling their candidates now, this is not a persuasion election in 2022. This is a turnout election. If we can get on the Democratic side, I happen to hear this more, um, you know, the, the, peep, the, the level of participation uh, for, uh, that we had in 2018 uh, will win. The Democrats will win. So all we need to do, we don't need to persuade undecided voters. We need to get our base out. And of course, if uh, you know ditto on the republican side and of course then you have the the um you know in the worser case scenarios uh how can we try how can we try to prevent people on the other side from voting so that way we win then but if everybody is going to vote or 90 percent of the people are going to vote and everybody is listening all the time you really can't do that the incentive structure changes you really have to talk to everybody campaigns will become more about persuasion less about turnout I think, as EJ says, that would make for a slightly more 
less kind of polarized and ideological uh, electorate. And, you know, and the other thing is it would invite many more people into the system. I tell the story uh, all the time. You know, I ran in 11 elections, as EJ said. Uh, you know, I love I hated raising money, uh, but I did it because I had to. Um, but I loved knocking on doors. But I was given a list at the, at the beginning of a night uh, of registered voters. And that registered voter list would be highlighted. And the highlights were for people who were what we called prime voters. And basically what the candidate, you know, the, the campaign team, all of whom were friends of mine, said is don't waste your time on people who are not prime voters. You know, so if you see people sitting on a stoop and they're not on that list, as, as Dion Warwick would say, walk on by, you know, just uh, don't engage them because they can't help you. And that's a terrible thing for, you know what I mean? So and if, if I know that all those people are elected, I'm going to stop. I'm going to talk to everybody and everybody's going to feel invited into the process. And we have done about three dozen events together now on this. And I always say at the end of that little spiel that it's the only thing Miles says during our talks that I don't fully believe, because knowing Miles, I know he probably stopped and talked to them anyway and had to be dragged away. Uh, by his campaign consultants. But his point is the right one, uh, which is that um, a lot of people, and it really goes back to where we started, we are just not inviting a lot of people into the system. Um, and we think it takes a reform, a, a big reform like this one, to change a whole series of behaviors in what we think is a more democratic and more inclusive a, 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 you know, a process with a minimum of coercion, because this is not a heavy handed form of coercion. It, you know, at most you pay a fine of 20 bucks. Uh, and I think that that's worth it. And again, we ask people to do a lot of things in the society by law. We, as Miles said, we have jury duty. And uh, Charles Ogletree, the great civil rights lawyer, uh, said that um, you know, the jury gives ordinary people extraordinary power, elections give ordinary people. Uh, extraordinary power. We require parents to educate their kids, usually in school, although some can homeschool under certain circumstances, until at least the age of 16. That's a very serious uh, demand. And then we obviously have other kinds of regulations uh, in our lives, like we have to wear seatbelts, which is not only designed to protect us, but to it saves our medical system and thus all of us a whole lot of money. So there are things that we require in the public interest that when citizens agree to them, uh, they, uh, they are collectively better off. And we think this is a case where we would be collectively better off for this very small obligation, which again, we want to make as easy as possible. Uh, and it would be far easier than having to serve on a jury for a long trial, and that's for sure. I think one of the things you also point out in the book to go back to the case of Australia is that it's not just the parties that are then mobilizing the electorate. It's civic organizations. It's the government. Um, it's a whole range of actors that then get involved with in schools and universities. There's greater stakes for other sectors of society um, uh, to, to be involved in the electoral uh, process, not just the parties. Um, I also wanted to get your take, though, on, um, on how this might work with our current primary system, because 
What we know with the state of primaries is that we now have, you know, non-competitive um, uh, Many we're at the highest level of non-competitive uh, congressional districts um, uh, in, I think, um, in, 20, in, in 2020, only 23 million of America's 235 million voters effectively elected 83% of Congress. So a, a small number of people are essentially choosing the candidates in, in these primary elections. And this is really contributing to many of the problems that we're seeing in the types of candidates. Um, we, we saw, for example, you know, um, former President Donald Trump talking about primarying out people, and we see him doing this right now in this election year, um, who don't buy into the big lie. Um, and so I, I wonder what your, your thoughts are on how universal voting would work if we don't reform, or, or how can it work in also reforming the primary system? Right. Well, it's a very, very good question, Karen, and, and not, not an easy one. Let me come at it from the from a, a little bit sideways, which is that one question one question is what elections in a larger sense, what elections should this apply to? And the United States has a lot more elections than most other countries. And that's a that's a complicating factor in and of itself. You know, we have school board elections and town council elections and water authority board elections, et cetera. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we generally uh, think that one of the things that may happen would, would, would be helpful to happen is some consolidation of elections so people don't have to go out as many times. And obviously, uh, if legislators are drafting a, a bill, they will have to figure out you know uh, what elections it should apply to. We did talk about the the specific issue of primaries, and our recommendation is that this not be applied to primaries, partly because in in a you know in a theoretical way they're not they are party um, affairs. You know they are they are decision making within a political party and kind of compelling someone to be uh, and you know to vote in a party primary. Um, you know, is, is, a, is a more complicated question, I think. So our recommendation has been not to include primaries, but I do think that, you know, to the degree that uh, universal voting ups the number of people who are participating at all, um, some, party, some party primaries are closed primaries, some are open, some are first past the post, some are have ranked choice voting, you know, they're, they're changing now. But I think the trend towards more open primaries, more participation would, I think, in general, be a healthy one. Yeah, the, I, I do think that by creating the bigger general election electorate, it would put on the minds of the primary voters uh, the need to pick candidates who can prevail in that larger electorate. Now, that doesn't get around gerrymandering, which we have to do something about. I got to say, my own feeling on that discussion, which is not related directly to the proposal in the book, is I think um, I, I am torn between two sort of broad ideas, which is, on the one hand, I want uh, parties to pick mainstream candidates who appeal beyond just the very, very core base. I see advantages to that. But I also think parties are very important. I think we underplay the role of parties as essential to democracy. If we got rid of parties today, uh, they would form in about two weeks, uh, different names. Uh, but we would organize ourselves because parties are a way of people organizing themselves to have influence on government and take power. Um, the system I've been partial to, maybe because it's the one I grew up with in Massachusetts, 
is a party primary system that allows independents to pick up a ballot in either party on primary day. Uh, and they can switch their registrations back to independent if they want in New Hampshire, where they have this system, you can actually switch right at the polling place and go back to being independent. So it creates a kind of semi-open uh, primary um, because I, you know I think California has sort of this system which in general elections can give you a Democrat running against a Democrat or a Republican running against a Republican. Um, and some people argue, well, that creates some benefit for maybe the more moderate Republican or more moderate Democrat. But it actually disenfranchises a lot of voters who may not vote in the primary and wanted to go out and vote for a Republican or a Democrat um, in the general election. So I think that all our debates about this should be tempered by wanting a more broadly open system on the one side, but understanding that every democratic system needs some sort of party system to function, if I may say so, democratically and in a representative way. And I think that's the struggle we have. We are in close to the end of our time, and I hope that you don't mind. We have one more question that we would love for you to address, and we're so grateful for the time that you've spent with us on Democracy Matters and for your attention to the topic of strengthening democracy. What's next? How are you hoping to move this idea forward? Well, I think the, um, uh, you know, we are very uh, um, uh, happy with the way the book has been received and believe in the power of the, of the written word. But we also believe that the, the, there, there is power in organizing. So I think what we are hoping to do is to create a kind of an organized initiative that will kind of, you know, Operate, I would say, in three three big strategies. One is to continue, as we've tried to do with the book, to put this idea out into public debate. I mean, we're you know we're happy when a, the the New York Post editorial uh, board or the or columnist uh, criticizes us because it means that the conversation is beginning. We're putting this on the table and people are responding, and that's important. So uh, we'd love to see it discussed on college campuses. We're hoping that maybe some political science professors will assign the book to their classes. That would be a great thing. Um, but anyway, but on the one level, sort of continuing the idea discussion. The second level, and EJ referred to the democracy movement, you know, is that there that many of these organizations are working on, you know, one issue or another within the voting uh, uh, field. We'd like to put this as part of the of the suite of policies that the democracy movement supports, not to supplant work on automatic voter registration or ranked choice voting or um, same day registration or um, um, uh, restoration of voting rights to formerly incarcerated people. All those things are really, really important to do, but we'd also like one plank, so to speak, to be the idea that we are really moving towards universal voting. And then I'm hoping that in 2023, uh, or 2024, depending on how it is, that in some some states and some municipalities, legislators or uh, city councilors will say, you know, this is this is worth taking a risk. This is worth going a little bit against the grain uh, up and you know of, of what people have been thinking about up until now, and let's have some political debate. I mean, we did have actually a public hearing in the state of Massachusetts on a bill that was filed for uh, universal voting. There was a bill filed in Connecticut that we actually um, have put in the book um, by, a, by a very special uh, state legislator there. Anyway, so, so that's, those are the three prongs to try to keep it moving in the idea world, 
um, to get the democracy movement to pick up the cudgel, so to speak, uh, and then to hopefully see it in public policy debate, uh, you know, starting next year. I'll be happy. Uh, Miles's kind yeah. reference there was to a former student of mine, State Senator Will Haskell, who actually introduced the bill in Connecticut. And his bill is an appendix in our book where we just want to show this can be done. Here's a way, one way uh, a legislator uh, did it. And um, the what I can add to what Miles said are just two things. One is uh, uh, we included in the book Abraham Lincoln's quote about we must disenthrall ourselves and uh, we must think anew and act anew um, under these circumstances. And I do think that because we live in a moment where Lots of people are deeply concerned about the long-term health of democracy, see threats to democracy itself, uh, and want to fight back against it. But in the process, are also discovering the value of and importance of democracy. Um, we think there is an opening for new ideas, for people to take steps they might not have thought about uh, five or 10 years ago to make democracy stronger, more inclusive, uh, and to get past this mess we're in. Um, the other thing I always like to point out, because we talk about Australia a lot, um, is that there are ideas that seem terribly radical when they are first proposed and then are taken for granted uh, once they're adopted. I mean, you can go all the way back. Voting used to be limited to white men with property. Uh, we would never imagine a system that did that would be a democratic. But there's something we take for granted every election, uh, which is the secret ballot. The secret ballot was not the way we did elections for much of our history. Uh, and as it happens, there was a country called Australia uh, that pioneered the secret ballot. And it was known for many, many years as the Australian ballot. And this idea came to America as we proposed to bring universal voting to America. And there was a fierce debate about it across the country in the 1880s and 1890s and early 1900s. Uh, Jill Lepore, the great historian up at Harvard, wrote a lovely piece about it in uh, The New Yorker. Um, and people thought it was a terrible idea. Machine politicians sure didn't like it because if they bought votes with the old system, they actually knew somebody had voted the way they said they would for the $5 or whatever they gave them. But a lot of people didn't like it. No, people should declare themselves in the open. And uh, within 30 years, everybody was using the secret ballot. Um, we took one good idea from Australia and made it an integral part of our system. I think this is an idea where if we adopt it, um, we will over time appreciate it the way the Australians do. My favorite picture of voting in Australia photo um, is of four surfers in their wetsuits standing in the voting booth with their surfboards leaned up to the side of the voting booth, casting their ballots. They clearly jumped out of the surf, cast their votes and jumped right back in. That is a country that values voting, understands and accepts its importance. Uh, and if you add the idea that maybe we could all become good surfers in the process, that would be kind of fun. Uh, but uh, we hope that people come to see this as a way of making our democracy better, more inclusive and less prone to cycles of exclusion. Rapport and EJ Dion, co-authors of 100% Democracy, the case for universal voting. Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thanks so much for having us. This was great fun. Indeed, enjoyed it very much.